0: This is Legal and Compliance Insights from Control Risks, a global specialist risk consultancy. This is the podcast, helping you navigate the legal and compliance landscape wherever your business takes you. I'm Charles Hecker, I'm a partner in the firm, and today we're going to be taking a close look at sovereign asset tracing the investigative process of enforcing against sovereign states, the challenges, and why it's relevant now. I have two of our very own in-house experts here with me today, Lorna van Oss and Ramon Gosh. Lorna and Ramon both sit in our London office and assist clients at all stages of a dispute, from providing an initial counterparty assessment to supporting asset recovery after a settlement has been reached. Lorna, welcome to the podcast. Tell us a little bit about what you do.
1: Hi, Chuck. I'm an associate director in our business intelligence practice, and I work on dispute support matters across the EMEA region.
2: Ramon, it's a pleasure having you here today. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Hi, Chuck. I'm a partner in our compliance forensics and intelligence practice. I'm a former commercial litigator and typically help clients during investigations and in assessing counterparty risk.
0: Fantastic. Let's jump right in. Basics, please. What do we mean by sovereign asset tracing. And why is it relevant now?
1: Well, asset tracing is the process by which we identify assets belonging to parties, be they individuals, private companies, who owe money to our clients, either because our client has obtained a judgment or reward against them, or is a creditor seeking to recover a, a defaulted loan. The difference with sovereign asset tracing is that this is asset tracing against the sovereign state. So most of these cases are arising from investor state disputes, usually where a foreign investor claims that the state has maybe interfered with its local investments or, as a more extreme example, has expropriated its assets in the country where it's invested. So most of these cases are resolved through international arbitration on the basis of bilateral multilateral investment treaties. And then it's a question for our clients of actually enforcing and collecting on that cash.
2: So, in terms of why it's relevant now, I mean, we can see that disputes involving sovereign states are definitely on the increase. So, to throw a couple of stats at you, Chuck, the International Center for Settlement of Investment Disputes releases statistics annually. Now, that's an organization which is essentially an international arbitration institution which will hear disputes between states and international investors. So, in 2020, it logged 58 new cases, but compared with the five years previously, There were just under 50 cases per year. So I think that we can expect that trend to increase further because of the impacts of the COVID-19 pandemic. So we've already seen significant supply chain disruption, a lack of available human capital affecting industries. We're seeing a lot of that in the UK currently. And I think we'll continue to see that across the board, in particular, I think across infrastructure projects, which will typically be those with some level of state funding. From a macro level, we know that Commercial normality is going to return to a number of wealthy nations, probably the UK included, but the impact of the pandemic is going to be continued to be felt, not just by businesses across the globe, but by states, given the limitation on public funds caused by the pandemic, the various fiscal stimulation packages, and frankly, a reordering of priorities from what they were three to five years ago. So this is borne out again by statistics. If you look at world bank estimates, government debt from emerging and developing markets is rising. So in 2020, it was 60.8% of GDP, which was an 8% increase from what it was in 2019. And we expect that to continue in an upwards trajectory. Ramon, you mentioned the increase in the quantity of cases recently,
0: but how has the state of play around these disputes changed since the start of the pandemic?
2: We're currently in October 2021, and it's very different to what the mood music was in early to mid 2020. So at that point, going back, you know, 18 months, many businesses, quite rightly, were waiting to see whether there'd be a financial and operational rebound in particular jurisdictions and industries. And therefore many, certainly those that had kind of had capital reserves, were holding off on litigation and the discretionary spend that comes with that. And as you know, I think for many aspects of the pandemic, we've come a very long way in a short time. So early on, we're at that stage of economic uncertainty across the board. We didn't know how long this would last. The true impact, how many industries and businesses would succumb. So I think that now many entities and you know many businesses have seen too much inertia or non-payment. They want to free up capital for different opportunities to use in different parts of the business. So it's a much more tenacious disputes driven environment now with a lot of that goodwill collaboration and negotiation having been exhausted during twenty twenty in the first half of twenty twenty one. So what does that mean in terms of sovereign asset recovery? Well, it means that there's going to be increased contract frustration, financial defaults between investors and state entities. Lorna, what makes enforcing against the
0: sovereign state particularly challenging?
1: Well, there are several challenges to this kind of work, and it differs in several ways from our usual asset identification of companies or individuals. So for a start, it might be stating the obvious, but we're looking for assets outside the home jurisdiction of the sovereign state. It makes sense that a country that doesn't recognize the outcome of litigation or arbitration internationally and is refusing to pay out to the creditor isn't then going to comply if, if the claimant or the creditor comes to the country and tries to attach assets there. And for us as investigators, that means that right from the start, we have to approach this in a different way from a typical asset tracing assignment where maybe our first step would be to consider where the company or the individual is most active and where their biggest footprint is. Secondly, we have to consider the impact of state immunity when looking at which assets to go after. So, sovereign or state immunity is a doctrine of international law that essentially means a sovereign state cannot commit a legal wrong and is immune from civil proceedings or prosecution. And how that's developed into law with regard to enforcement is that in most jurisdictions, the assets of a state are protected from enforcement where they're being used for sovereign purposes. So what that means for us is that it exempts some of the most visible or obvious signs of assets that a state might own abroad, such as its embassies might be located in kind of very high value neighbourhoods. We're not going to be able to attach them because they'll be considered to be supporting its sovereign activities. Similarly, funds held by a central bank are also usually considered exempt. And that means that we have to be a bit clever in our approach to how we think about enforcing. It's
0: so interesting to hear you talk about this, because over in the world of political risk, where I live, we use a lot of the same terms, and I think we come up against a lot of the same challenges. How in a sovereign asset, Trace, do you meet the challenges you face?
1: The first thing we would try and do probably in one of these cases is to try and work out which assets are not subject to sovereign immunity. In most jurisdictions, there are restrictions to state immunity, and it doesn't apply to assets being used for commercial purposes. So that means that, for example, if a state's invested in properties that are then leased out for commercial gain, it may be possible to enforce against them. Or similarly, if it has a portfolio of investments in companies that are not supporting its activities as a sovereign, these may be attachable. And there have also been cases in the past where claimants have successfully managed to attach funds which were earmarked for the repayment of commercial loans because of that commercial activity restriction. Another thing we would look at is the international footprint of state-owned enterprises, because If you think about it, 10% of the world's largest companies are state-owned enterprises and they often hold a state's most valuable assets. However, it's not quite as simple as just being able to go and seeing what they own abroad and enforcing against those assets. Our client would have to prove that the SOE is an alter ego of the state. And what this means is that the SOE is so interconnected with the state itself that its assets can be considered directly owned by the state. So there are a couple of interesting examples of, of where this Alter ego argument has worked and hasn't. There was an interesting case a couple of years ago. It was Crystalex International Corporation versus the Republic of Venezuela. And Crystalex had a $1.2 billion award against Venezuela. It identified some valuable shares in a US petroleum company. And it then had to prove to the US courts that those shares, which were not held directly by the Republic of Venezuela, they were held by the state owned oil and gas company Pedavesa. So Crystalex had to make the argument in the US courts that. The Republic of Venezuela's control over Pedavesa was so extensive that it's actually an alter ego of the state. And it was successful in this. In 2019, the US Court of Appeals ruled that Crystal X should be able to attach Pedavesa's shares in Citgo Petroleum, which was the US company it was after. It's not always so easy to make that argument. There's been a case against Jekamin, the mining company which is owned by the Democratic Republic of the Congo, where a claimant tried to make an an argument in the Jersey courts that Jekameen was an alter ego of the DRC. However, the Court of Appeal of Jersey found this was not the case because they had separate budgets, separate debt and tax liabilities, and so on. I think this is where investigators can add a huge amount of value. The threshold for the alter ego argument is going to vary between jurisdictions, but essentially Claims have to show that the state has extensive control over an SOE, whether it's by showing that its profits go directly to the state, that government officials have a hand in its daily affairs and so on. And that's where kind of getting behind an SOE, showing how it functions, how it's managed, the degree of governmental control there is and how its budget works is is really important and particularly difficult in jurisdictions where there's little information in the public domain. That's where I need to bring in investigators to Try and help you gain insight from sources and insiders and potential witnesses who can give a clear picture of how the company works.
2: So I worked on a case about 10 years ago which had the exact elements that Lorna's just described where a state-owned entity or state-owned entities were acting as an ego of the state and in that case I worked on behalf of an infrastructure company that had quite a significant concession with a government entity to build, operate and manage a contract. Which was going extremely well until it was very quickly and unilaterally cancelled following a change of government. What happened from there was that the client invoked their arbitration clause, instructed us to undertake a sovereign asset search to understand what assets were available and could be enforced and recovered against. The difficulty in looking at the state often is just how wide the remit is. So in terms of how we went about that one, it was with a very wide lens we looked at key industries within that country which included tourism, hospitality, the fishery sector which were predominantly government owned and appeared from the outside to be, you know, high revenue generators. So we knew there were, there were good assets, but the difficulty was in kind of ascertaining government ownership and control. Quite often you'll have to decipher complex holding structures, opaquely held entities and then link them back to you know, being under control of the state. So in that particular case, it went to one of Lorna's points, which was where you have quite difficult to obtain corporate records, which might not always be up to date or accurate. But we also used a few different other work streams as well. we were also, as you often get on these cases, working under extreme pressure because council wanted to invoke a freezing order and were worried that because there'd been a change of government that there would have been a lot of other contracts which had also been unilaterally cancelled and therefore it would have been a high number of creditors. So it was really a mix of research inquiries, forensic accounting to track ownership structure, and that helped. And eventually there was a successful arbitration award to the client for $270 million. So I think my key takeaway from that, apart from the complexity and difficulty in in kind of looking at the state, is that you can't really just have research as your only work stream. You'll often need forensic accountants, you'll need you know, conversations on the ground, what we would call source work or human intelligence. But then again, you need to be very careful about who you speak to and exactly how you go about it, because with high profile disputes against states, which may have a weak rule of law, they're going to take typically a dim view of adverse parties being in country and building a case against them. So it can and does get exciting. $270
0: million certainly got my attention as an exciting figure. Guys, I mean, what kind of swag are we after here? I mean, in a typical case, what types of assets are you hoping to find?
1: So the first step in any case would be just to kind of put a plan together that enables us to focus our resources on the right assets, the assets that are going to be the most valuable, but also most straightforward to attach. So, we would start by mapping out the international assets of a state before deciding which to prioritize on the basis of factors that we've discussed earlier. So, for example, whether an asset's used for commercial purposes or where it's located and whether it's in a jurisdiction that accepts restrictions on state immunity. So, for example, China and Hong Kong don't have any restrictions on the law of state immunity. So, you basically wouldn't be doing any activity there and whether it's likely to be a straightforward process to get a local court to recognise the judgement or award that you hold. So typical starting points for us would be EU or common law jurisdictions. We'd also be looking at the transferability and liquidity of an asset. Is it going to be easy for a client to convert that into cash? And can ownership be transferred relatively easily?
2: So in terms of the types of assets that we'd be looking at, properties are often a very good starting point. And if we can show that a building's been used for commercial purposes opposed to cash then that can be a positive And there's huge potential in those common law jurisdictions that Lorna mentioned, especially in a place like the UK, where we know a large number of properties are owned by offshore entities and ultimately held by politically exposed persons. So there was a December 2016 Transparency International report, which found that 91% of overseas entities that own property in London are registered in secrecy havens. And that same study found that 75% of land titles are linked to politically exposed persons owned by companies registered either in Panama or the BVI. In terms of property, another good way to look at finding ownership across property is to really look for things like planning applications or tenders for improvement works, which can connect a property to a government or provide just further context as to its use. So there was a an ongoing case that's been bubbling away for the last seven or eight years, which is a retrospective tax dispute between Cairn Energy and the government of India, and Cairn Energy successfully used information which they found in a public tender document to win an application in French courts to freeze 20 million euros of residential property in France, which they found was connected with the Indian government. Now, that's part of like a one and a half billion dollar dispute, but it just goes to show that you can be creative and actually get good assets attached to your case if you go about research in the right way. Another class of assets that we can look at are movable assets. So in that case of you know, Cairn Energy Against India, they're also looking at nationalised airlines like Air India, ships owned by the government, and also freezing bank accounts. So if we focus on aircraft or vessels, there have been quite a, quite a few different cases where they've actually been seized as part of proceedings. And these can often be quite useful in terms of you know, if they hold symbolic importance to a country, then from a tactical perspective, freezing them even for a short period of time, can force a sovereign debtor, you know, to the table for settlement, or just add a further kind of pressure point or a bit of leverage. In terms of high-profile cases, there's probably three or four which are quite high-profile and exciting. One was in June of last year, 2020, where the Republic of Congo's president had his private jet grounded in Bordeaux, in France, as part of the government's 25-year-long dispute with a Lebanese businessman. So, typically, an aircraft used by a president might have state immunity if it's been used on diplomatic mission but where it's used for personal trips, vacations, et cetera, can be targeted, and that one was attached.
0: Sometimes we deal with cases that really have no easy outcome or no easy win. How do you assist a client in a case like that?
1: So, yeah, picking up on that last point about the private jet, obviously in every case we're hoping to find valuable assets located in jurisdictions where we know that our client has a really good chance of attaching them, but the reality is that this is not always going to be the case sometimes it's it's a question of forcing the counterparty to the negotiating table and pushing them towards settlement. And so as we were discussing, the, the private jet is an excellent example of where going after a high profile asset that affects the day to day life of a key decision maker is going to be quite effective. Because sometimes it is just a case of trying to become an irritant to the counterparty so that they're pressured into early settlement. Even freezes on assets that are later successfully appealed can still prove very helpful to getting to settlement more quickly. For example, if you are able to target the international assets of an important state-owned enterprise, you might be able to temporarily freeze revenues that are actually vital for the state budget. And crucially, it also plays a role in putting off investors who are considering doing business with it. So the state that you're trying to enforce against will be sensitive to situations where they think that investors may withdraw if they see that there are risks of engaging with their state-owned entity. Any government trying to court foreign investment will be sensitive about the image it's portraying internationally and more inclined to settle.
0: Guys, thank you very much for an incredibly insightful conversation. Lorna, thank you. Thanks, Chuck. And Ramon, thanks very much.
2: Thanks very much, Chuck.
0: If you're in need of any support relating to the topics covered in today's episode or are simply interested in hearing more about our range of legal and compliance services, do get in touch. And before you go, make sure to subscribe.